Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the particulars of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including Hyundai Kona Electric becomes the first ever electric vehicle crash tested in Australia and the results are good. And Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot are working out a merger. Rob Fraser and I discuss the new Audi A1 while Mark Pizzi from Monash University talks about the student racing team that is now into autonomous cars. We have some motoring minutes and we'll have some quirky news with Brian Smith. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Just look for Overdrive, Cars, Transport and Culture. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. The Hyundai Kona Electric has become the first ever electric vehicle to be crash tested in Australia. The test was only the frontal offset crash test, but when combined with the previous tests of the petrol Kona, this represents a five-star crash test rating. Earlier this month, Hyundai's Nexo became the first hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle tested by the U.S. Insurance Institute of Highway Safety, earning a Top Safety Pick Plus award. Prior to this, Nexo was also the first fuel cell electric vehicle to achieve a maximum five-star overall rating in Euro NCAPS safety test. Soon after the rumours started, the PSA Group, the French owner of Peugeot, and its US-Italian rival, Fiat Chrysler, confirmed that they intend to merge the two companies. A deal between the two car makers would create a business with a combined market value of approximately $72 billion in Australian dollars with current sales of 8.7 million cars a year. The companies say that they are joining forces to build a world leader for a new era in sustainable mobility. The news comes four months after a proposal to create a tie-up between Fiat Chrysler and the French car maker Renault collapsed. The French government, which owns 15% of Renault, thought a merger was too risky because of the current tensions between existing partners Renault and Nissan. The return of the Brabham name to vehicle construction and racing continues to develop. Brabham's BT62, their one car to date, will now be released in a competition specification. It will be used for the company's endurance racing debut at Brands Hatch in early November. Brabham Automotive customers now have three variants to choose from, Ultimate Track Car, Competitive Spec and Road Compliant Conversion. The competition spec retains the ultimate track car Brabham 5.4 litre naturally aspirated V8 engine developing 700 horsepower, that's 522 kilowatts, mated to a six-speed sequential gearbox. It will cost a customer 1.4 million Australian dollars plus tax. Brabham will only be building a total of 70 BT62s spread across the three specifications. 
Dutch solar car company Lightyear says it has achieved a record score for aerodynamics for its five-seater Lightyear 1 while undergoing wind tunnel tests in Turin in Italy. The lower the coefficient of drag, the better. Most modern production cars are around a figure of about 0.3, while the Lightyear 1 is 0.2. As a world record, there needs to be a clarification. It is the best result so far for a five-seater car. GM's now-defunct EV1 was the most aerodynamic car ever sold in America at 0.195. The limited production Volkswagen XL1 had a CD of 0.186, but was only offered in Europe. Lightyear's other claim to fame is that they put a solar panel in the roof of their vehicle. Police in Estonia have offered drivers caught speeding with a choice between taking a break from the road instead of paying a fine. A report in the English language service of Estonia's public broadcasting organisation says drivers exceeding the speed limit by 20 kilometres an hour must wait 45 minutes in a parking area next to the road and 60 minutes if they drive between 21 and 40 kilometres an hour over the limit. This approach is only being used with drivers with no previous traffic offences driving on the tallinn Rapla road. It is hoped that an immediate significant impact that is faced by drivers will be better than a fine. And that has been the news. As we know, road safety is everybody's responsibility and courtesy for other drivers does go a long way towards a safer driving experience for everyone. Rob Fraser tells us of a recent experience he had. Like a lot of motorists, I try to apply common courtesy to other drivers, especially truck drivers as, for the most part, they are good drivers and are simply trying to do their job. There are some notable exceptions. However, my appreciation for the difficulties they face stepped up a notch or two as I recently completed the evaluations to get my heavy rigid truck licence. On the test, I encountered drivers wandering across into my lane while they were texting and driving, cars cutting in in front at stoplights when I had already calculated my stopping distance and it was now cut dramatically short, drivers not realising that it takes a little longer to get 25 tonnes moving and beeping me from behind. However, without doubt, the worst offenders were a bunch of pushbike riders that had a total disdain for the fact that they were doing 40 kilometres an hour in an 80 kilometre zone and riding three across to take up the full lane. I'll say no more. So for the sake of everyone's safety, let's all simply apply common courtesy to other drivers, especially the truckies, and please drive safely out there. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, I've just been to the launch of the new Audi A1 and who better to discuss both it and where we drove it than our good friend Rob Fraser. G'day, Rob. David, how are you? Very well, thank you. The A1, they call it a sportsback, which is somewhere between a hatchback and a wagon. But I was going to say a passenger car. Haven't been selling real world passenger cars, have they? No, they've sort of been the forgotten segment in the, you know, the tsunami that the SUVs have carried out. These guys haven't sold many this year of the old model because they've had supply problems. Apparently, Audi bought in a new model, and by, I think it was February this year, Audi Australia had no more to sell, but they couldn't launch the new model until now. Yeah, when, when you're bringing cars in from overseas, it's always a bit of a difficulty, isn't it? Supply is often thing, and they've had another problem with uh, some of their diesel engines. Not that that affects us, the A1, but there was some 
technology that it wasn't detecting if people were putting other types of fuel in the car and so that caused them problems little a1 they want to make it look more masculine yeah look i don't know about that i mean i, I it's definitely aimed at the urban younger market isn't it and I don't know if they want the masculine car or not. Well, the thing is that 70% of the sales in Australia of the old model were to females. The average around the world is 60%, so it's skewed even further. So the idea is perhaps to make it look a little tougher. You know what they did with the big SUVs? They had the Q7, which was a bit of a family-looking car. Then they brought out the Q8, bigger number, but not necessarily bigger in size. In fact, it seats only five, but it's more masculine in its looks, more angles, a bit more aggressive, a bit lower, wider look about it. Did you like that look? Look, I, I definitely like the Q8. I mean, I like the Q7 as well. But I think they're aiming definitely at a different market there because in that market, it's generally the female that decides what sort of vehicle they want and the man wants it to look as masculine as possible. But I wonder sometimes whether the changing, whether the A1 is sold to females because that's the market. Yeah. You know, and, and by changing it to be more masculine, they're actually going to sort of reduce some of their sales. When I say more masculine, it's not bogan. It's not huge wings on the back and absurdly flared guards or anything. It's just a bit more angular. If you see the pictures of it, you're not going to sort of say that's something that would make it to world championship wrestling, if you know what I mean. bit like the Q2, bit edgy, bit angular, yeah. Audi's Q2 had less of that sort of bubbly look and more of the angular, and this is where they're aiming at. The interior, it has a digital dash, but very sharp lines as well. And, in fact, it has that long horizontal air vent across there. It reminded me almost of an old Cadillac of the 50s and early 60s. You know what I mean? Mm. A few comfort features missing. There's no centre armrest in the base and middle models. There's no In the base model, there's no push button start and there's no leather seats at all unless you get a particular option so while it is a upmarket car there are a number a few little things that i think are missing three engines a three-cylinder now you mentioned urban area three-cylinder turbo absolutely for the urban area i think we drove it out on the more open roads around tasmania but i think the three-cylinder you really had to think if you're going to try and do an overtaking move true but it does it around town it's just got that little bit of a zippy edge and you don't miss a larger engine at all really do you well around town you don't need that huge torque sort of to pull off particularly in a small car the middle one is a a 1.4 litre four-cylinder which the if the three cylinders for the urban the four-cylinder i would take in the country with the family and then the top of the range is really a gti type of car two litre turbo 147 kilowatts that's the car i'd go driving on my own yes yeah very much that's a nice engine that one the base and middle model have a seven-speed automatic gearbox, and the hot hatch has only a six-speed. When you say automatic, you mean DSG? Uh, yeah. Yep. Because Audi and Volkswagen have just had a massive recall on the DSG boxes again. Yeah. The gearboxes are getting unnecessarily complex, I think. They are. This one's by inspection. So, I mean, it's well, I like the concept of the DSG. They've just seemed to have had a lot of problems with them over the years. Well, when is too many gears not enough? 
That's the other issue, that we seem to think that we have to have a million gears now, which really is pushing us towards continually variable transmissions. Safety in the car, great safety features that are provided at the base model. Oh, that's excellent. I think they are three different cars. Rob, lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. You're listening to Overdrive. David Brown was invited recently to a major summit on autonomous vehicles. He says the development of autonomous vehicles is quite staggering, but he feels we're not going to reach nirvana in the near future, if ever. Australia's fourth International Driverless Vehicles Summit was told that the worldwide economy for autonomous vehicles and associated industries is currently worth $7 trillion. That's not million or even billion, but trillion dollars. There was some wonderful technology, but there was also a strong dose of reality. The expectation for fully autonomous vehicles, level 5, anywhere, anytime, is declining, and it will take longer. But autonomous vehicles in selected places, parks, campuses, retirement villages, public transport corridors and motorways, is happening now to some extent. But everyone is benefiting in the short term from assisted driving technology, like automatic emergency braking, but it's now going much further. This is Overdrive across Australia. Students from Monash University attended the recent 4th International Driverless Vehicle Summit in Sydney with their latest race car, which is an autonomous vehicle. I spoke to Mark Pesey, Monash University's Industry Portfolio Manager, about how the team is set up, where does it race, and what does it mean to the students. So the student team that's involved in motorsport, Monash Motorsport, it's a, it's a long-standing worldwide competition between universities. It started off with um, petrol, normal, uh, normal aspirated vehicles, which is now being phased out, funnily enough. Um, Monash has just reached the number one status across the world, which is uh, quite impressive because they're competing against much, much larger, much, much uh, older universities in Germany, particularly who love racing in America, but we've reached number one status, which is amazing. And we're now moving on to electric vehicles. We're also doing very, very well. And uh, here at this event, we have an, our autonomous racing car going around, which is, uh, which is very exciting. It's not just a bit of engineering technology, is it? It involves a very wide range of disciplines. The student team essentially performs as a full racing team end-to-end. So we have people in the team who are, who are design engineers. We have people in the team who are almost inventing new products and pushing the boundaries. Um, we have people in logistics. We have people in legal we have people in marketing, PR comms, they sponsor themselves, um, they get their own funding, they send large teams around the world to race for months in Europe, which is not cheap. And their car development is not like a proper Formula One racing team, but is pushing that level where they do need significant investment to have world-class vehicles. So it's a, it's a fully functioning replication of a, a racing team with all its bells and whistles. Aerodynamics and a whole range of subjects. They're designing the car from scratch. So what happens in practice is the last version from last year that did well. What happened? Why didn't it win? Why wasn't it number one? Let's go and redesign that and recut it just like a normal racing team. That might be aerodynamics. It might be propulsion systems. It might be, in our days, battery power, algorithms, LIDARs, all the things that hang off making uh, the car successful are part of what the team does from scratch. There's also that point you make about management. 
It is not just having a brilliant idea, it's bringing it to fruition. Is that one of the great consequences, values of the exercise you're doing? Probably the, uh, the main benefit overall for student teams is not the technology. There's lots of smart kids. It's the platform to have an interface to the real world, business, talking to people who don't want to listen, managing stakeholders like herding chickens, all the real stuff that really happens. And our kids are fantastic. They get immersed in that. And so they get to understand that being smart is a small part of being successful. Working with people and managing relationships and finding a win-win is more of a, a critical thing for business life most of the time. And hopefully they get immersed in that during their studies. How many students would be involved in any one year? Generically, most of our key student teams, the Nova Rover team, which I think came ninth in the Nova Rover World Challenge in Utah, which is, which is extremely impressive. So helping NASA develop a rover to go to Mars, which is awesome. So we're trying to get a really lightweight product there. So they came ninth, which is awesome in their second year in. I think we've got a, a Monash rocket team that I think came first in one of the categories worldwide. We've got an autonomous drone. We've got hundreds of teams. Lots of them focused on engineering and really usually tapping into the things that are current within the world that are interesting and exciting and have an engineering bent. And most of those teams have 50, 100, 200 members, some of them active, some of them passive. These students would be on it every day. They're doing their 40 contact hours studying engineering. They're then doing their 40 hours working on a project, which is fantastic. I believe one of the people in the motorsport team was from the medical profession. It just shows a cross-discipline sort of approach, even if you don't use their discipline to the full extent. Oh, look, they absolutely, lots of the best research is through um, collaboration between non-aligned faculties. So the partnership between engineering and IT is pretty obvious. Everything has an algorithm. The partnership with engineering and medicine is one that's now really, it's always been there, but it's now getting larger. So human-robot interface. This is all about human psychology, medicine, engineering, how they're working. So one of the greatest areas of study at the moment in the world, Google, Amazon, all the big players, how are robots and humans going to play together? You have a laboratory-type system set up, or how does that work? Our motorsport team has its own labs uh, within the uni, but also unis are really um, places where they have very expensive, very modern pieces of technical equipment. Monash uses them to allow the students to utilise them. Usually there's an academic somewhere sitting in the background helping, but the students get to access any number of um, awesome laboratories. They have their own ones for motorsport, but they access microscopy, x-ray, wind tunnel, whatever you need that they can access. And also the unis do share with each other. So Monash Uni just happens to have one of the biggest wind tunnels in the Southern Hemisphere. Other unis come and use our wind tunnels with ProQuo to help them out as well. Can private industry dabble in that? Absolutely. We, Monash um, has a, um, a, a premise and it's had it for many years where they actually have a formalised process called platforms. I think we have 25 of them um, because we have these very expensive machines. Usually the small to medium enterprises find it very hard to use them. We open that up to industry. So sometimes they can say, how much will it cost for you to do the test for us? Sometimes it might be, can you train our people to sit in your lab and do it for themselves? Or can we have time exclusively with it? So we have a range of um, platforms that uh, we have there so industry can use these um, experimental laboratories and gain advantage. Mark, thank you for your time. No problem at all. You're listening to Overdrive. Prestige car manufacturers almost all have an SUV in their model lineup today. 
And Rob Fraser tells us about the next Prestige SUV that's coming our way. Porsche started the Prestige SUV tsunami many years ago with the Cayenne, a vehicle that has had resounding sales success around the world. Of course, Range Rover has always been there, and now there are others. Bentley has the Bentayga, Rolls-Royce the Cullinan, Lamborghini the Urus, Maserati the Levante, and now Aston Martin is close to releasing their SUV. Due for release in December 2019, the Aston Martin DBX is said to display the same sports car abilities that the brand is famous for and will feature a 4-litre twin-turbo V8 that is currently in the existing Vantage and DB11 sports cars with additional tuning to regularly top 180 miles per hour. As you would expect, there are a number of specially designed option packs like the pet pack, snow pack, luggage pack, all designed to enhance the lifestyle opportunities of the DBZ. Pricing for Australia is yet to be confirmed. You're listening to Overdrive. Brian, do you have in a car that they are starting to do things for you that you don't want them to do? Yes. Yes, indeed. I've talked to Rob Fraser about this, but it comes to my mind. I've just had a a couple of Nissans, the X-Trail and now the Pathfinder. And they have an annoying habit of beeping when you lock them, when you press the fob and lock them. In fact, the Pathfinder is even worse. If you leave the key in the car, which you might do... Deliberately, yeah. Yeah, deliberately. It's very clever. It senses that you've got out no one's sitting in the car, but the key's still in it. So it starts beeping. Beep, beep, beep. I think it then stops, you know, but it's three beeps. I don't need this. My neighbours don't need it. No one needs it. And I find it somewhat annoying. Oh, look, I, I am furious, furious agreement with you, David. The other bit that gets me um, is, is when cars do things that bewilder you. So I drive a, a v, VW uh, Tiguan at the moment, uh, a new model, and, um, and you know, sometimes it refuses to be locked in a particular way. So it has a, a sensor on the door handle and you can pass your hand across it. And as long as you've got the key in your pocket, it'll lock the car but if the sunroof is open a little bit it won't lock the car that way you have to actually then use the key fob so those sort of things where you go what are you trying to tell me uh lassie (laughs) bobby's caught in the mine (laughs) yeah that's it yeah you try obviously try to tell me something i don't know what it is but yes i agree with you on the beeps so, um, remember when car alarms were first uh, oh, sort yeah. of a thing and, and lots of and you'd have a car alarm that when you turned the car off or on or you know walked away from it it would it would make a loud noise and to, to kind of tell you yes the alarm is now on but exactly that thing of the neighbors you know hmm. i don't want to make that sound it's like the those awful people who beat their horn when they leave having visited someone yes. that just does my head in so yes i agree david got any other examples well the jaguar loved them went on a drive day with concord uh, jaguar it was very elegant uh, but of course the f-pace when you start it up revs the engine oh does it really like you're a boy racer like a blip yeah boom, boom 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 i think others do it daston martins and so on it's sending a message that i don't want to send yeah, it's like the Harley Davidson sort of yeah. obnoxious sound that's just like, you know, here I am, look at me. Yes. Um, you know, obnoxious American style attention seeking. The Nissan 
then you have to go and try. You can turn it off. Well, I worked out how to turn it off with the X-Trail, but not with the Pathfinder. I ran out of time. I only had the car a week. But the X-Trail, <laughs> I had to go to the manual. Now, here's a challenge, Brian. What would you look up in the back of the manual because your car is beeping yes. when you lock it? Yeah, well, that's exactly the problem, isn't it? What? what how is this in the index? What did you look up? Is it beeping? No, lock or warning. But I went to it indirectly and stumbled across the solution, which <laughs> said that the car setting up beeping is set up for the South African and European market. Really? Yeah, and it's all to do with locking and not being carjacked, I believe. Oh, but okay. Yeah. The way to turn it on and off is merely on the fob to hold down the lock and the unlock buttons for more than two and a half seconds. So that's fine. I tried that on the Pathfinder, but it didn't work. And I didn't have the will... <laughs> to look it up. ...to yes. go to another to another 550-page <laughs> manual. Trying to stumble across the answer. Control-Alt-Delete. <laughs> Control, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they do need... They do need a sort of a, a summary of, you know, if my car is doing this, you know, you can look it up. Um, an annoying noise and, and the, for your mobile phone to identify what it is and how to damn well fix it. You know that quite a number of the voice actuated systems will relate to a profanity. <laughs> In terms of emergency? No, no. If you finally say, oh, for heaven's sake, <laughs> it'll cancel. You'll say, turning off now. <laughs> oh. I'll go and, you know, mix sex and travel. You know, I'll go yeah, and, yeah. and do that. It, it will turn off. It recognises that as the same as... Oh, wow, okay. ...as cancel. I often found when, when you'd ring up and when the, the companies would first have those voice uh, things, so tell us what your problem is, and they would never be able to get it right, um, I just found I could just uh, say the word elephant or something like that, and it would immediately put me through to a human because it just didn't, it just failed to understand. It was the only way. I'd just say, it is the phone, I'd go elephant, and then I'd be able to speak to a person. <laughs> I really liked that. I'm hoping that they will eventually put manuals online with a search function. Search. A, a little bit like Siri that can try and interpret that a your mood i think that might be a really powerful thing but also a number of key words that it might be able to look that up well also david um it could be sensitive to what's just happened you know within the car why doesn't the, the car itself yes. have a built-in manual uh, which is context specific Brian, as always, it's great to talk to you. Thank you once again for all your time. Thank you, David. Brian Smith, and we were talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. I'd like to thank the whole Overdrive team and its supporters, but particularly for their wit and wisdom, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser, Mark Peasy and Paul Just. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify and we have our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.